working our way through 1 Timothy, as you know, and um, we come to a passage that uh, very clearly shows us the kind of passion Paul had for the church. Um, He loved the church. Paul really loved the church. He wanted to see the church thrive. He's writing to Timothy, who was a pastor in the church of Ephesus. He wanted to see the church spiritually healthy. Above all, he wanted to see the church magnify the Lord Jesus Christ who bought his church with his own blood. For Paul, it would be unthinkable. It would have been unthinkable, I should say, to approach church like a consumer. You know, those who see churches as producers of goods and kind of judging churches based on why kind of like this here and that there. The music's good here. The, the, The programs I like over here and so forth. This church goes too long, and all of that, right? Quite frankly, the way that some approach the church today, like a consumer. Paul also would have gagged at the idea of approaching the church in merely a sentimental and nostalgic sort of way, right? I don't know if you've ever heard people talk like this. I certainly have. Now that we have kids, we really should go to church, right? It's like, oh, now we should, right? Um, And usually it's probably because that's said by someone who grew up going to church and they kind of have some sentimental feelings about all of that. Paul would have never approached the church that way. It would have been unthinkable for Paul to approach the church in a casual, half-in, half-out sort of way. The approach that that views the church as something that we don't want to be too encumbered by that. We don't want to be overly committed We don't want to have too many responsibilities or duties in the church and so forth. For Paul, the church was something so far above all of those kinds of considerations. And it was out of this passion for the church that Paul wrote this letter to Timothy. We see this in verses 14 and 15 of our text, where Paul says he tells us the purpose for which he wrote this letter. He tells us in verses 14 and 15, look at what it says. I hope to come to you soon, Timothy, but I'm writing these things to you. I'm writing this letter to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the church. Do you see the purpose there? Right? Paul says, it's really the Holy Spirit's purpose, but Paul says, I'm writing to you so that, that's purpose, so that you may know how one ought to behave in the church. Now let's be honest. For many, this doesn't enter into the equation at all. How I behave in the church? I just show up or don't, right? And I, when I come, I just kind of do my own thing. But for Paul, this is why he wrote this letter to Timothy. He wants Timothy to know, and through Timothy, he wants the church to know, what does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to be part of the church? How do I behave? How do I conduct myself in the family of God? This letter gives a lot of instruction for how we ought to live or behave or conduct ourselves in the church. And it's important. Godly conduct matters. It matters. We've already seen earlier in this letter that, that, that Paul exhorts men to pray, lifting holy hands without anger and fighting. Do you remember that from chapter 2? 
Paul also exhorts women to adorn themselves with godliness and good works rather than gaudy and immodest dress. Right? He says, adorn yourself with inner beauty. That was in chapter 2 as well. We've seen how the Spirit, or how Paul, through this, or the Spirit through Paul, calls for qualified men to fill the offices of elder and deacon. As elder or pastor, they're to give in oversight, teaching and preaching the word of God authoritatively and faithfully. And as deacons, qualified men are called to serve the body's physical needs. These are, these, this is instruction for how people are ought, ought to behave in the church. This is good for us. It's, it's important that we, that we conduct ourselves in a godly way way, in a way that honors the Lord, in a way that he has laid out for us. This is some of the nuts and bolts that we've already seen in the book of 1 Timothy, and we're going to see more as we go through the book of 1 Timothy, as we continue on. But what Paul does here, it's like he takes a step back from the nuts and bolts of, of Christian conduct in the church. He takes a step back, and I think it's amazing what he does here. He elevates the church before our eyes. The church, the church that Jesus suffered and died to purchase. He elevates the church by utilizing or using, I think, three marvelous descriptive phrases to describe the church. And we need to know this. I wonder, we prayed for our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan. I wonder if for them being part of the church is... Some, maybe taken a little more serious than it is for most Western Christians. Probably so. They probably see it as something precious. We get to be part of this congregation of people, this family of God, this household of our God. So Paul elevates the church using three amazing descriptive phrases. And then the second thing Paul does is he, he exalts this common confession that all true Christians share. And I think we need to know this. I, I think we, I have such an urgency that as the church, and of course we're part of the church, right? Real life church is not the church, we're part of the church. But I have such a burden and such an urgency in light of all that's going on in the world around us and what's going on in not just in other parts of the world, but in our own country, that we understand what it means to be a Christian and what it means to be a part of the body of Christ. The church is not just another organization or club or group to be part of among others. It is a glorious thing. Listen to what, how Paul describes the church. I'm just going to name the three ways he describes it. We're going to just spend, time spending, spend some time unpacking each. He calls the church the church of the living God. He calls the church or describes the church as the household of God. And he describes the church as the pillar and buttress or pillar and support of the truth. Think about that. First, he describes the church as the church of the living God. That God is the living God is one of the most common designations given to God in the New Testament, used 15 times. Our God is the living God. 
as opposed to dead idols that have eyes that can't see and ears but can't hear and all of that. Our God is the living God. Yahweh is the living God. He is eternal and he is immortal. He is the source of all life and he gives this life to all who are in Christ, to his people in the church. He is the living God and we are his, we, we are his church. One of the most stunning truths in the New Testament, a stupendous promise. And we sung about it and we prayed about it. But something that is to be experienced for believers is that through Christ, we become the dwelling place of God. Isn't that amazing? I mean, the Old Testament, you know, they would, they would pick up and they, they, would, they would tear apart and pick up all the pieces of the tabernacle and make their way through the desert and then they'd set it up again and God would dwell in the midst of the camp, in the tent of meeting, And in the New Testament, this promise, this glorious new covenant promise is that I will be their God, they will be my people, I will dwell among them and walk among them. 2 Corinthians 6, 16, Paul says, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Now, we sang earlier, and Alyssa mentioned, you know, that we'd be more aware of God's presence, that we are the dwelling place of God. I think that is so needed. And as we sang that song, I was reminded of Jacob in the wilderness. I think it's in Genesis 18. Um, Jacob is in the wilderness. Remember, it's a place that he named Bethel or Bethel, and, and he has this dream And he wakes up from this dream. He says, oh my goodness, God was here and I didn't even know it. (laughs) We are the church of the living God. God dwells in our midst and we are to know that. We're to know it by promise. God promises it, whether we feel it or not. But praise his name. He wants us to know and experience his nearness among us. As we gather in his name, we are the church of the living God. Paul says elsewhere in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 22, it says, In him, that is in Christ, you also, speaking of the church, are being built together to be a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is stunning. Because God, by his Holy Spirit, dwells in each one of us, when we come together as the church, We are the church of the living God. And therefore, I hope you understand the church is unlike any other organization. It's not not a social group where we get together and kind of network. and It's much more than that. There's a social aspect to it, no doubt. But it is so much more than that. It is the dwelling place of God on earth. Now this phrase, church of the living God, might sound a little institutional, like the, the church of the living God. It might sound kind of stale and inst- institutional. Interestingly, in the Greek manuscripts from which our English Bibles come, the words are, are actually in a different order. It literally reads, we, we are the living God's church. 
And you might say, well, what's the difference? Well, the difference is on the emphasis. The emphasis is on the living God. He's the living God, and we are his church. The, the word church, ekklesia, the Greek word ekklesia, means God's called out ones. We are called out of the world. We are called to this God who is the living God who dwells in our midst. The church is, and we are as part of the church, the living God's church. And because of that, our conduct, our behavior, how we live, how we approach life in the church really does matter. The second phrase Paul uses to elevate the church, to describe the church, is he says the church is the household of God. The church is God's household. Household comes from the Greek word oikos, which speaks of a home or a house and all the people that form the family in that home. We're God's household. The church is is God's household. With God as our Father. With God as our Father. Jesus gives us the immense, immense privilege of calling God our Father. Isn't that amazing? I remember when we taught through the Lord's Prayer. Uh, I can't remember if that was a year ago or so. Maybe further back than that. And one thing that stood out to me, really kind of, I'd, I'd, I'd seen it, I'd read it a gazillion times, but I'd never noticed it. It just hit me in the face. Is that Jesus teaches us to pray, our Father. He is not just my Father. He is my Father. And I, and I, I ought to say, Father, I thank you for being my Father, but he is our Father. We are the household of God. God is our Father. Jesus gives us this immense privilege of calling God our Father. He puts the Father's name on us. He brings us to the Father's home so that the Father is our Father. He purchases us with his blood so that we can be adopted into God's family and know him as our Father. We are God's household. We're part of God's David mentioned earlier, we're part of God, David Janicek, part of God's family, part of his eternal family. Part of God's eternal family. Not only that, the Lord Jesus Christ is our brother to whom we're being conformed. Isn't that amazing? His, shed, his blood poured out was the price for our adoption and now we're being conformed to his image. When we, when we say, Lord, we want to be holy, what we're saying is we want to be like Christ. And praise the Lord, that is his purpose for us, is to be conformed to the image of the firstborn, Jesus Christ. That's what Paul says in Romans eight twenty nine. It says that we were predestined. God planned this from before time. God intended for this before time, for all who trust in Jesus, predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that Jesus might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. We're God's household. Isn't that that amazing? Isn't that a wonderful reality? The church is God's household. It is not just a bunch of ordinary people. It's people that are going to live forever in God's house. We gather together in Jesus' name. 
We're God's household, and in the sp- it, it, we're, we're, we're children of our Father. We are, we are brothers and sisters of Christ to whom we're being conformed as image, and we are all indwelt with the spirit of adoption. It's one thing to have Jesus teach us to pray to God as our Father. That's wonderful. What a wonderful thing. Praise his name. It is quite another. I mean, anybody can utter the words our Father, right? Some pagan who doesn't believe in Christ, wants nothing to do with him, can say the words our Father. It is something altogether different. It is quite another thing for the Holy Spirit of God, the spirit of adoption to be poured into our hearts, the very love of God shed abroad in our hearts by the Spirit, and he gives us from within this familial cry to God as Abba, Father. Only one other person in the New Testament do we hear out of the words Abba, and it is Christ. Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, shares his status as son with us. We've been given the spirit of adoption or spirit of sonship. It's a glorious thing. We are God's household. The Father is our Father. Jesus, we're being conformed to his image. We have the spirit of adoption indwelling us. This is stunning. We're God's household. Now, one more thing. Look around this room. And it's not just this room, obviously. It's millions of others. But look around. Those who are in Christ by faith alone, those sitting next to you, in front of you, behind you, are your brothers and sisters and will be forever will be forever. We are God's, I remember I've been to several, the Rise and, and, and others, um, adoption uh, proceedings at the courthouse when it's finalized. And this, this phrase, forever family, comes up. Now this is a forever family. We are part of God's forever family. You and me, and we're going to be together. I don't know how it's going to work with, you know, millions of people in heaven, but we're going to be together, and we're going to, you know, here, in, here on earth, right, even with brothers and sisters, there's relational challenges and difficulties. Heaven and the new heavens and new earth will be a, perf- a world of perfect love. Perfect love. And I would suggest that as we align ourselves with God's purposes and the truth of what God says about us, that we're his household, we will grow in our affection and forbearance and forgiveness of one another here now as well. I fear for those who would say that they're Christians and, and, and may give a profession that they trust in Christ, but they really want nothing to do with other Christians. And they really don't have that, that, that familial cry to God as their father. And they might show up Sunday after Sunday, but are content largely with being strangers. And, and I know that there's different personality types, all of that for sure. But just content with being strangers, brothers and sisters, it shouldn't be that way. It shouldn't be that way. We're God's household. We're brothers and sisters of one another. In fact, I would suggest, I would say that it may be evidence that someone that I'm describing 
hasn't been adopted into God's family at all. The church is God's household and he wants his children to draw, he wants his children near and he wants his children near to Christ and he wants his children full of his spirit and he wants his children near to each other. We are God's household. The church is an extraordinary, I was gonna say organization, I'm not sure, living organization or organism, I don't know. It's an extraordinary thing. We're God's household. The third phrase that Paul uses is that the church is the pillar and buttress of the truth. Or buttress, we don't really use that word, support or foundation. The church is the pillar and support of the truth. This is an awesome description of the church. John Calvin wrote about this and wrote on this and he said, it is no ordinary dignity that is ascribed to the church when it is called the pillar and ground of the truth. For what higher terms could be used to describe it? Of course, pillar and buttress or support are architectural terms to speak of a building or some kind of structure. The church is the spiritual structure, right? Living stones, Paul or Peter says. We're being put together as living stones. The church is the structure that holds up and holds forth God's truth in the world. It's important to understand the church is not the source of truth. The church is not the source of truth. The church doesn't decide what's true. God is the source of truth. God is, there's a name given to him in the Old Testament, Jehovah El Amet. I went through a book with some kids a couple years ago, The Names of God. Jehovah El Amet, he is the Lord God of truth. And he's given us the good deposit of truth in his word. Jesus prayed in John 17, 17, Father, sanctify them in the truth. You know what he says next? Your word is truth. This is a divine call that our lives and the life of the church generally and the life of this church would be saturated by the word of God. Saturated by the word of God. The word must be Everything to the church. I mean, not everything. It must, be, it must have a prime place in the church. It is God's revelation to us. And we don't have a message to the world without God's word. We do not have anything to say to them without God's word. It's God's revelation. We must hold up and hold out God's word because it is sufficient. It's totally sufficient to teach us everything God intends for us to know and believe for our salvation and for life and godliness in Christ. It is totally sufficient to equip believers for every good work. That's what Paul says in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. The word of God is sufficient for to equip us for every, every, every good work. What good work do you, comes to mind? God's word is sufficient to equip you for that.
we are, as the church, the pillar in support of the truth. We are to hold it up and hold it forth in the world. And right now, there seems to be kind of this perfect storm. That's the way I see it anyways. There's such demonic deception in our world right now. Demonic deception. And lies foisted upon us daily. And at the same time, to me it seems like Christians and the church are losing their grip on the truth. And I mean the truth. I don't mean just true things. I mean what Francis Schaeffer said when he said true truth. Absolute truth. And what's being substituted is, is a kind of weak, spineless spirituality. People are very spiritual. But they don't want to be too dogmatic about the truth. Right? Brothers and sisters, in our day, in every day, in Paul's day, right now, we must be dogmatic about the truth. If the church is the pillar and support of not just true things, not just some truth, but the truth, the definite article, the truth, we must be dogmatic about the truth. We must be about the truth. We must be about the truth. We need to know the truth. We need to get the truth down into our bones. And I realize you might say, well, yeah, but there's a lot in the Bible. How do we, well, we do it step by step, right? We, do, we just immerse ourselves in it today and tomorrow and the next day. And we're people of the book. It was said of John Bunyan, and I, you maybe have heard me say this before. I think uh, that if you pricked him, if you pricked him with a pin, he would bleed the Bible, and if you've ever read Pilgrim's Progress, you're like, yep, because it's everywhere. <laughs> and uh, that's what we want to be striving for. We're the pillar and support of the truth. So if the church is the living God's church and the household of God and the pillar of support of the truth, do you think it matters how we behave, how we conduct ourselves in the church? Absolutely. Of course it does. But Paul is not done. What he does next is he exalts, and I'm going to try to get through this relatively quick, pretty quickly, but just bear with me. He exalts in our common confession. He, 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 he elevates the church using three descriptive phrases, and then he exalts in what is called our common confession. Look at verse 16. Paul says, Great indeed, we confess is the mystery of godliness. Now, great indeed, we confess the mystery of godliness. Now, verse 16 might seem like it's out of place. Like, what does this have to do with what he said in verse four, verses 14 and 15? It's not out of place. And I, in fact, I want to show you later, or very, I want to show you shortly how this connects with Paul's main point, which is how we're to conduct ourselves as Christians. But what is Paul communicating here? He's drawing our attention to the common confession that true Christians make. Those who are part of the living God's church, those who are part of God's household, those that are part of the pillar and support of the truth, the church, this is our common confession. 
The New American Standard puts the first part of verse 16 this way. It says, By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. The New King James says says it this way, Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. The point is this. This mystery of godliness, whatever it is, and we'll get to that, is something that every true Christian agrees on. There's no controversy here. Lots of controversies, and even controversies over certain parts of the Bible and so forth. This confession, there is no controversy here for true Christians. This is by common consent of all born-again believers. Christians believe this. Now, just kind of a sidebar, Christians have always had confessions or creeds going back to the earliest church. Things that they say, where they say, we believe this. We as Christians believe this. And then they make their statement. We live in a time where I think there's an aversion to confessions and creeds. I think it's part of why there's why we're losing our grip on the truth. I mean, obviously we get our creed, we ought to get our confessions from the scriptures, no doubt. But I think it's to our detriment. There's a lack of common clarity on what we believe, on what Christians hold to in common. The Apostles' Creed, the earliest of the the Christian creeds, begins with the words, I believe. And Christians would say this together, I believe this. The Nicene Creed starts with the words, we believe. And they would confess with their mouths the things that they held in common. I think, that, I think it's powerful. I think it's important that we understand and have common, common confession. So Paul says here, great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. Or by common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. Now, what is this phrase, the mystery of godliness? Don't let the word mystery throw you off. Someone might hear the word mystery and think, oh, this must be some kind of esoteric secret knowledge that I need to climb some spiritual ladder and reach up and grab. Or I need to get this through like some kind of dream or mystical experience or anything like that. That's not what it means at all. When Paul uses the word mystery in the New Testament, He always has a specific meaning in mind, and it's this. Something that was previously hidden that's now been revealed. The mystery of godliness, the revealing of godliness, or the revealing of God-likeness. So what is that? Well, it's not a what, it's a who. It's not a what, it's a who. And what follows is more than likely a portion of an early Christian song that they would sing together, a hymn. It's a hymn about Christ. The mystery of godliness is the revealing of the God-man, Jesus Christ. This is the mystery. Listen to this. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, 
seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. Our common confession, brothers and sisters, is what we confess about Christ. It's got to be central. And his salvation, and the salvation is found in Christ. This is what there's no controversy about. There is, there is not an iota of controversy among true Christians in this confession. All who are part of the living God's church confess this. And so, briefly, and, but with deepest reverence, let's, let's think about each phrase of this confession, okay? He was manifested in the flesh. Jesus Christ the eternal Son of God humbled himself by leaving his throne above and took on flesh, became a man, and listen, took the form of a slave. The high king of heaven became a slave. The Nicene Creed says it so beautifully. It says, for us and for our salvation, he came down. I love that. It's just so simple. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. And why? Christ became a man in order to die for men, mankind. Christ became a man. He came down for our salvation. He came down, became a man, fully God still, didn't, didn't cease to be God in the least bit, came down, became a man in order to die for men. Hebrews 2.17 says he was made like us in every way. He didn't sin, that's one way he wasn't like us, but he became like us in every way so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God by making propitiation for our sins, by bearing the wrath of God in our place for our sins. That's why he became a man. That's why he was manifested in the flesh. The next phrase, he was vindicated by the Spirit. Jesus Christ came in utter humiliation and lowliness, as we just talked about. Isaiah chapter 53 says, puts it this way, he, speaking of Christ, had no form or majesty that we should look at him. He had no beauty that we should des desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. Nevertheless, the Holy Spirit vindicated Christ, his person and work all along the way. At his baptism, this son of a carpenter, a no, you know, he came up out of the water the Holy Spirit descends on him like a dove and the Father speaks his word of love and adoration for his son. During his ministry, Jesus, rejected by the religious leaders of the Jews, never, nevertheless, he was empowered by the Spirit. Acts chapter 10 says he was, he was full of the Spirit and of power and went around doing good and healing all of those oppressed by the devil. At his resurrection, Jesus Christ was vindicated by the Holy Spirit who vindicated and testified 
and justified his work on the cross where he bore our sins. Romans 1.4 says, says this, Christ was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ was vindicated by the Spirit. Next, we, next phrase is he was seen by angels. <clears throat> angels aren't mentioned much in the Gospels, but we see them in some key places, and it's always in regards to Christ, right? It's always, it's always where Jesus is. At his birth, the angels proclaimed the coming of Jesus. In Gethsemane, when Christ is sweating drops of blood as he contemplates the cross, There are angels there to minister to him at his resurrection. The angels are in the empty tomb. At his ascension, the angels are there with the disciples. As Jesus is lifted up into the clouds, he was seen and beheld by angels. Angels had beheld the glory of Christ from the moment of their creation, no doubt, right? He's eternally God. But it was perhaps these events in redemptive history that Peter refers to when he says that angels long to look into the salvation we experience. Jesus was not incarnate for angels. He didn't suffer and die and rise again for angels. The writer of Hebrews says it wasn't for angels, that it's not angels that he helps, it's the offspring of Abraham. And yet the angels, probably for the purpose of worship, As you see in Revelation, the angels, myriads and myriads of angels singing praises to Christ. He was seen by angels. The next phrase is he was proclaimed among the nations. The great commission Jesus gave to his disciples in Matthew was go make disciples of all nations. In Mark it was preach the gospel to all creation. In Luke it was repentance and forgiveness of sins will be proclaimed among all the nations. And the disciples, guess what they did? When the Holy Spirit came, they did it. That's what they did. They went. The book of Acts, we see, started in Jerusalem, spread out from there in Acts 8 through Philip to Samaria. In Acts 10, it goes to the Gentiles. In Acts 13, Paul and Barnabas are commissioned and take the gospel to the known world. And even today, the commission still stands. Christ is to be proclaimed among the nations. In fact, the end won't happen until he is. Right? He won't return until all nations have heard the gospel. The next phrase, he was believed on in the world. It's not just that the message is to be broadcast to all nations to the ends of the earth, but the expectation is that there will be repentance and faith granted by the Spirit as the gospel is proclaimed and all nations come to Christ. This is the great song of Revelation chapter 5 when they sing, worthy are you, O God. Worthy are you, singing to Christ, to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood, listen, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. He was believed on in the world. The next phrase, he was taken up in glory. This is the last phrase. And I think this speaks of the ascension of Christ. Jesus Christ has now been exalted. This is no insignificant thing. He sits at the right hand hand of God with 
universal authority. 1 Corinthians 15 says he sits there reigning as enemies are being put under his feet as his footstool. Now, think about that. We, all this stuff that's going on in the world, I mean, we, we see it, we feel it's like, what is going on? God's word says enemies are being put under the feet of Christ. Those that have eyes of faith, those that have faith to see that will rejoice even as we weep over what's happening. And at just the right time, Jesus Christ will come again to put everything right. This is our blessed hope. In the end, the wrong shall fail. We sing this at Christmas time, and the right will prevail. This is what we confess about Christ. This is what the church needs to give back to today is broadcasting this confession about Jesus. This is what matters. Christ, what we confess about him. We're not here to build our own little kingdoms. We're here to confess Jesus Christ. Jesus is Lord, the God-man who lived a perfect life, died an atoning death, bearing the wrath of God for sinners, who rose again, conquering death, who ascended to the Father's right hand and sits there as King of kings and Lord of lords. And he's coming again. We must be, he, excuse me, he must be proclaimed among the nations and by his grace, they will hear and come as his people go. This is our common confession. Amen? Isn't this our common confession? It must be. May we confess this together? So, I'm like a minute from being done, okay? Let's end with this, all right? What does this confession have to do with our conduct in the church? This. When our behavior gets off, when our conduct is ungodly, it's because something else has assumed the center rather than the preeminence of Christ and what we confess about him. However, our confession and worship of Christ, living faith in Christ and active submission to Christ is the key to godly, reverent, conduct and living and behavior in the church which is the living God's church the household of God the pillar and support of the truth amen let's pray holy father give us a vision for the glory of the church we're we're, we're nothing in this room, we're nothing in and of ourselves. We're nothing. But you say, as part of your church, we're the living God's church. We're the household of God. We're the pillar and buttress of the truth. We want to align ourselves with that. And Lord, this glorious confession of Christ, this, this song that no doubt Christians sang 2,000 years ago, Father, may this be our confession, who Christ is, what he has accomplished. May we confess Christ, worship Christ, 
believe in Christ, submit ourselves to Christ, and live our lives for the glory of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Praise the Lord. Would you stand? This is God's blessing over you today as you go. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. You're dismissed.